0: This morning, Psalm two. And we are been studying the some of the Psalms over the last several months, and as we come into the, the Advent season, we'll be looking at some of the Psalms that touch on the the prophecies of, of, of Christ's coming and and His authority, His rule. You know the hymn we started the service out this morning, "Joy to the World." is one of the most recognizable of of all the the Christmas hymns that we sing. There there are some Christmas hymns that are maybe a little more obscure. I don't know that you'll hear Thou Did's Leave Thy Throne playing in in Walmart while you walk around or coming in on the radio, but Joy to the World is one of those ones that we hear pretty much all season long. Uh, In fact, according to the Dictionary of North American Hymnology, and yes, such a thing exists, it is the most published Christmas hymn in North America, Joy to the World. It appears in 1,387 different hymn books, which I didn't know that there were 1,387 different hymn books, but it shows up in just about all of them. If you thumb to the Christmas section, you'll find Joy to the World in just about any hymnal. You'll hear it all season long. It gets played dozens and dozens of times. The irony, of course, about Joy to the World, as, as Michael noted in the introduction, is it's really actually about the second coming of Jesus. It's a hymn that celebrates the fact that when he returns... At the end of history, he's coming back as king, and he's going to rule over everything. That heaven and nature will sing together. Right now, the, the creation's under a curse. But one day, when Jesus comes back, he's going to free it from that, and, and everything will be made right that is currently out out of whack. You see, the fact is that Jesus' first coming, that we, we were celebrating here at the Advent season, he really wasn't welcomed and received as the king. Yes, he was the king. He came preaching, saying, repent, because the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the, the king is here in your midst. But what did they do? They rejected the king. Instead of placing the crown on his head, they mockingly and ironically made a crown of thorns. And instead of putting the robe upon him, they, they, they mockingly put a, a scarlet robe, mockingly say, hail, hail, king of the Jews. Rather than, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive his king. He's rejected. He's hated, he is scorned, except by a handful, a small handful, who see him as the Messiah, see him as the king, and put their trust and faith in him. You see, the first coming of Jesus didn't really bring joy to the world with an exclamation mark, but sort of joy to the world with a a question mark. Really, does this really bring bring joy? The Pharisees, the people of Israel, they figured, hey, if this guy is king, we're going to lose our position, we're going to lose our power, we're going to lose... Our status, the fact that he's claiming to be the king, that's not something that we want. We think about Herod, that the Magi come to him. Where is he that's born king of the Jews? We've seen his star. We've come to worship him. He freaks out because he's like, I'm king of the Jews, and I'm not going to brook any kind of dissent or any kind of competition. The fact that the king came wasn't actually good news for people who didn't want the king to come. Even the message today that Jesus is the king who rules over everything, that he makes the rules, not you or me. That's not a popular message. That's not a message that we're like, yes, we're so glad that someone else will be boss of my life. Joy to the world? Well, many will sing their celebration this time of year at Jesus' coming, they live their rebellion to his rule and to his reign. So this morning I want to consider Psalm 2, a psalm that thinks about the actually both comings of Jesus, his rejection in his first coming and his rule and and his reign that will will really be brought to bear in his second coming. It's a psalm that is all about the fact that God's Son, God's Messiah, his anointed one will indeed reign in spite of the fact that the world rejects him. This is a psalm that calls everyone to submit to the rule of Jesus. Now that means a lot of things. That means more than popping into church two or three times a year or so saying, yep, I'm a Christian, answer check on a, on a Pew Research survey. It means truly acknowledging him as the, as the Lord, as the King, as the God in our lives in a way that really changes the way that we live. It's more than just kind of a, uh-huh, I give a sense of that theological statement, but it is a bringing the entirety of our lives in subjection to his rule. So let's read Psalm 2, follow along as I, as I read God's word. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. It's a big rebellion against God. People don't want God to rule over them. Now, how does God respond? He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So this psalm, just 12 verses, goes really four stanzas, each of them three verses each. And you'll notice sort of in each stanza, except for the, the, the last one, but really in that one we have speech, but each of these stanzas has some kind of, somebody is speaking, Right, so in the first stanza, we have all the nations speaking their rage and rebellion against God's rule. Verse 3, they're saying, let us break their bands and throw God's restraint, His rule off us. Verses 4, 5, and 6, we see God, the one who's enthroned in heaven, He speaks and says, I, I've put my king, I've, I've installed my king as I've seen fit. Then verses 7, 8, and 9, we get the, the anointed one, the Messiah, the king speaking. And then in verses 10, 11, and 12, we get the psalm itself. We get the Holy Spirit through David calling people to submit to King Jesus. So let's just walk through these four stanzas as as the psalm lays them out. In the first three verses, we see the world speaking, and the world is speaking their rage and rebellion against the rule of God. Now, most, most commentators, most scholars, think this psalm was used in sort of a coronation setting. So when Solomon, for example, becomes king, perhaps the psalm would have been used as part of the coronation service of just celebrating the fact that God's king has been installed, and God's king is sort of representing God's rule. That's that's possible, though uh, we we don't have anything outside of this to tell us for sure. But here's the idea. As the king is being installed, the the nations that are under their rule, you can think of like the Moabites or the Philistines, they don't like the fact that they are under the rule, the authority of David or Solomon or or, or any of their descendants ruling from Jerusalem. So verses 1, 2, and 3 sort of ask the question, why do the nations rage? They're thinking that, man, we're not going to have David rule over us. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to throw their restraint off. But really what is going on here is verse 2 says, they're rebelling not just against the king, not just against a political order, but against the Lord, against Yahweh, against God. Really what they have a problem with is not that it's David who's ruling, but it's that God is ruling. This is rebellion. If we want to break this down a few ways, it's rebellion first off against God's, God's rule. God's rule. Now, David, as he begins the psalm, he asks the question, why? Why on earth are they doing this? This does not make any sense to think, I'm going to go up against God, and I'm going to win. This is why do the heathen rage and the people imagine? Notice a vain thing. Now, vain is not using the a oh, vain. I'm going to go stare in the mirror all day. But the idea is something that's empty or futile. They are wasting their time trying to rebel against God. Okay, it's not going to turn out well for them. God's going to win. God wins every time because God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. Why do these nations rebel against God's rule? Why are they engaging in, in, a, in an endeavor that is absolutely futile? So it's sort of picturing the nations surrounding Israel trying to overthrow the new king, trying to conspire against them. Notice the language that's used. The, the heathen are, are raging. They're fomenting against the king's rule. They're, they're, they're conspiring, coming up with this, this, this plot Verse two, they've taken their stand and they they have counseled together. They've sort of closed ranks, standing shoulder to shoulder in an alliance against God and against His anointed one, against the King that's been a, been anointed. We we see that by the way through the through the Bible that when God installs a prophet, installs a priest, installs a king, they, they're anointed with oil, signifying you are set apart in a unique way. The Hebrew word here, anointed, is Mashiach. We get the word Messiah from, means anointed one. When that gets translated into Greek in the New Testament, it's the word Christos, Christ. So against the Lord and against his Christ, against his anointed one, against his Messiah, against his appointed king. Now here's the point. He says the the, the heathen, that is the, the nations of the earth, and the peoples, the kings, the rulers, the whole nine yards, universal There is this universal rebellion against the rule and the authority of God. This is not just something that happened back in 1000 BC. This describes all of human history. This describes every single one of us. We're part of a plot against God. The powerful and the weak are agreed on one thing. We don't want to acknowledge God's rule. We want to do what we want to do. This had it start all the way back in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve believed the lie that you'll eat of the tree... And you'll be able to determine good and evil. That's the idea of knowledge of good and evil. It's not just you sort of have cognitive knowledge. But you get to decide what is right and wrong for you. And that's the same message that we have today. Follow your heart. You you do you. Right? Uh, You go live your truth. It's the same idea. If you get to decide what's right and wrong, chart your own course, make your own rules, don't let anybody stop you, don't let anybody hold you back, you do what you think is right. All nationalities take part in this rebellion. All individuals are part of this grand conspiracy, including you and me. Because, listen, we're sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And because of that, we are part of this rebellion against God. We call it sin. So rebellion against God's rule. We don't want God telling us what to do. Now, verse 2 breaks us down even further. This is not only rebellion against God's rule, but against God's ruler. The way that the theocracy was meant to work in Israel is kings like David and Solomon aren't just sort of off doing their own thing, but they are representing and sort of embodying God's kingship over the nation. God was the king over Israel, and he appoints a king to say, you're under my law, you're representing me, you're not just an autocratic dictator doing what you want, but your job is to be constrained by my law and do what I want. So against the Lord and against his anointed, there's this special relationship between God and the appointed king. Now, the idea here is to rebel against the king is to rebel against the God who installed him. Remember David? He has an opportunity to kill King Saul, who had been anointed and duly installed as king. He says, I will not lift my hand up against God's anointed. He's recognizing this king, even though he's kind of a lousy king, is there by God's decree. It's not my place to to, to take him on, to fight, fight against him. It's against the Lord, against his anointed one. But ultimately, let's be honest. If you read the Old Testament, you find out that Judah and Israel, they're small potatoes in the geopolitical stage of the ancient Near East. The chances of the nations around them being like, let's get rid of them, it was actually pretty slim because it was very rare that they actually had any authority over the nations around them. Maybe in the reign of Solomon this might have been true. So this is looking to something even further afield from David. This is talking not just about David or about Solomon, but about the great-great-grandson great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson of David, Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, the New Testament quotes these verses to describe the ultimate conspiracy in human history that came out at Calvary. Go with me over to the book of Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter number 4. Here's what's happened in Acts four. In fact, just read this this morning in, in my devotions. There's persecution against the, the early church, and the the council, uh, you know, drags uh, Peter and John in there, and then tells them don't preach anymore, sends them out. Look at verse tw- verse 23, Acts four, verse 23. And being let go, so they're sent away from you know they've been yelled at by the Sanhedrin. They they've now been let go. They went to their own company. So they come and gather with the church reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. So they have a a time of corporate prayer. Here's what they say. Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. So they're just reminding themselves, like, yeah, man, the Sanhedrin are powerful, but God is more powerful. Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? Quoting from Psalm 2. The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Now notice how they interpret this. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together. So notice they named four different parties to this conspiracy. There's this big conspiracy talking about what happens at Calvary, the condemnation of Jesus. Okay, there's Herod. Who's sort of the local puppet ruler? He's like, yep, condemn Jesus. We don't, we don't need him. You got Pontius Pilate, who represents the authority of Rome, the great empire of the day. You got the Gentile nation sort of standing back behind them. But notice this, we also have, and the people of Israel represented by the Sanhedrin. Sometimes in history, people have wanted to blame one group of people for the the death of Jesus. Uh, Anti Semitism through human history. Other Jews are the ones who. This verse is making it clear. It was all of us. It was all the nations who agreed on one thing. They They couldn't agree on the color of the sky. But they agreed let's get rid of Jesus. Let's do away with him. Let's crucify him. Now, notice what it says. They were gathered together, verse 27. Now, verse 28 For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. This is the crazy thing. Pilate's doing exactly what he wants. Caiaphas is doing exactly what he wants. Judas is doing exactly what he wants. And all the things that they individually are willfully doing in rebellion against God is doing exactly what God wanted to have happen. That's stunning. That's the sovereignty of God working, where he's not turning these people into robots where they're like, I don't know what's happening, but their own hearts in rebellion and rejection of Jesus leads to them to say, let's crucify Jesus, let's betray him, let's let's kill him, let's execute him, fulfilling the eternal plan of God. He that sits in heaven will laugh and have them in derision. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. God overturns their rebellion. So back to back to Psalm 2. Really what this is about is not ultimately about a, the Philistines fighting David or some such thing. It's ultimately about all the nations of the earth rejecting King Jesus. This rebellion against not only God's rule, but God's ruler. The ultimate conspiracy in the history of humanity was the one... Unleashed against God's Messiah, Jesus. And one that almost seemed to work. You can see them all thinking, man, we that was easy. You arrest him in the sort of the dead of night. We have a bunch of trials. We get him up on the cross by 9 a.m. before anyone has really woken up from their, their big feast the day before. This worked. He's dead. He's put into a tomb. Back to Psalm 2. Notice verse 3. What is sort of underlying this? Let us break their bands asunder and cast. Away their cords from us. This is not only rebellion against God's rule and God's ruler, but against God's rules. What is it that people are ultimately trying to get rid of? Is the constraint of having to live life according to God's law. People don't like thou shalt and thou shalt not. Imperatives, mm, we don't like that. We'd rather be able to call the shots ourselves. They want to be got free of God's rule, God's ruler, God's rules. They don't want to be under God's dominion. They don't want to be subject to God's law. The goal here, and a long war against God, the goal has always been the same. Autonomy. I want to rule myself. I want to do what I want to do. We want to be our own boss. We want to be our own king. We want to write our own script and go our own way. But here's what we don't understand. People think... And we're all about freedom, and there's lots of talks, talk in the last 50 years about liberation, right? Liberation from this, and women's liberation, and these other kinds of liberation. We just want to be free from sort of societal constraints, and then we'll be free. But When the Bible talks about freedom, it's not just freedom from, but freedom to. It's positive freedom. So let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. You're going to be somebody's servant, right? Somebody or something will be the boss of your life. The idea that you can just be totally free and nobody can tell you what to do is a complete and utter myth. People think, I'm doing whatever I want to do, end up being the slave of their own hearts, their own passions. You ever hear of addiction before? It's voluntary slavery. Saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do whatever I want, and all of a sudden you are a slave to your own desires, a slave to some substance that you're like, I really want that. This idea that well, I don't want God telling me what to do. I don't want society telling me what to do. I'm going to tell me what to do. You know what? You're now a slave to your own heart and your own nature. So who's the boss? It's forced us to say, okay, is it going to be me and my own depraved heart? Or am I going to bow the knee to King Jesus and say, you're the king. You're the boss. You're the Lord. You're the master. Paul puts it very simply in Romans 6.18. He says, being then made free from sin... You're free from sin, you became the slaves of righteousness. You're either going to be the slave of sin or the slave of righteousness. There's no neutrality there where you're like, well, I'm I'm just going to sort of pick and choose. It's one or the other. So what we get described here in verses 1, 2, and 3 is a pretty potent description of the rebellion of your heart and my heart. It's the reason why I think in the Lord's Prayer we're instructed to to pray, Thy kingdom come one thing, we're longing for the, the reign and the rule of Jesus, but it's also a regular reminder, I'm not the king. Most problems, I would say, in, in marriages come down to the fact that one or both spouses want to be the king and build their own kingdom. I want my way to be the right way and everyone else to do it, and my needs to be catered to, rather than saying, this isn't about what I want, this is about God's rule. This is about building His kingdom. Conflicts in human relations come down to just the selfishness of I'm the king and everyone else should cater to me and sort of bow down and do obeisance to me. Thy kingdom come. Listen, if you are not a a Christian here today, verses 1, 2, and 3 describe where you're at. You might like, well, I don't feel like I'm raging against God. I just don't care about God. To not care about God is to disregard Him. It is to reject Him. What What is interesting is the what the nations look at and say, these are like like handcuffs, like shackles. God's rules feel so confining. To those who are believers feel like liberation. To the rebellious, God's law, God's word is like confining shackles. To the redeemed, God's law is liberty. It's like the end of the, the last battle, and I can't remember what the dwarves or whatever the creatures are. There's a feast going on, and so people were like, man, this feast is awesome. And then the other group is eating the exact same food. They're being like, this is like gravel. In the same way, God's God's word for those who are believers, this is freedom, this is life. For those who are rebellion to God, this is confining, this is slavery. Depends on where your heart is. We now move to God's response. What is God going to do about this cosmic, global, universal rebellion to his rule? All these people shaking their fists at him saying he's not going to rule. Is God going to panic? Is God going to call an emergency cabinet meeting with all the angels in heaven? What's God going to do about this? Verse 4, he that sitteth, or even a, a better rendering, he that is enthroned in the heavens shall laugh. Now, this is not God laughing be like, oh, that's funny, good joke, that was a great punchline. But this is more laughing, and mockery, and derision to be like, Yo, "What are you? Guys, there's no way this is going to succeed. You, you really think you're going to throw me off the throne of heaven? He that sits in heaven, he who sits enthroned in the heavens will laugh, and the Lord shall have them in derision. This is the laughter of, of mockery. So what does God do about this rebellion? The, the camera sort of pans from the, the rebellion on earth to the scene in heaven. We don't see a God who is worried, a God who is frightened, a God who panics. We see a God who, in a sense, laughs. He's deriding, he's mocking the folly of human kings trying to overthrow them. Now, he's not laughing at evil. Evil is no laughing matter. In fact, it's dangerous, I believe, to, to turn sin into a punchline. it's like, just a funny, goofy thing. It's a good way to change the, the moral perception of a people, is to make them laugh at sin that ought to make them weep. No, he's not laughing at their evil. Rather, he is la- laughing at the silliness of them trying to rebel against him. So we've got the nations raging, the the nations plotting, the nations conspiring, and God simply ruling and reigning, and none of it affecting him in the least. We don't see him calling anyone to consult. We don't see him setting up a special meeting with political experts or summoning in reinforcements. Why? Because compared to God, all the nations of the earth are nothing. Isaiah 40 says, all the nations of the earth are like a drop of the bucket. You're carrying a big five-gallon bucket of water and one drop kind of comes out. You're not like, oh no, where did my water go? It's one drop. It doesn't matter. It's like the, the dust on the scales. It's like when you, you come to, to weigh yourself in the morning, you get on the scale after Thanksgiving. Ooh, the numbers don't look good. So you pick the scale up and you blow the dust off. So you're like, that's where that extra 15 pounds came from. That's what the nations are like compared to God. The dust on the bathroom scale. It that doesn't make a difference. Think of all of the, the evil in our world. The evil of Hamas or Russia and North Korea, it's not a threat to God. All the vaunted wealth of the United States and the economic power of China is nothing in comparison to his infinite wealth. So the question raised by the psalmist, okay, are, are the kings of the earth the ones who are going to rule or the one who sits enthroned in heaven? Who's going to have the final say? And the, the answer is obvious. So God not only laughs, in verses 5 and 6, we see God speaks. Remember, each one of these stanzas ends with a, some kind of quotation. So God now speaks in verses 5 and 6. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Okay, so God's going to pronounce judgment against them. And here's the word of judgment. I've set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. The one thing that they're trying to stop is, we want to rule, we want to be in charge. God's like, guess what? I'm going to put my king on the throne. He is going to rule, and there's nothing you can do about it. I love that, just the the simplicity. It's like in the the creation account. God's creating through the, the six days of creation. And then there's a little throwaway comment. He made the stars also. God's not like, man, this was really hard. I made stars and galaxies. Just made the stars also. Just kind of a throwaway comment to underscore his infinite power. To oppose the thronged masses of the nations, God simply speaks. The same God who spoke the worlds into existence, will speak the rebellious nations into eternal doom. So God's plan to place his king on the throne will not be thwarted. In fact, the Hebrew is, is emphatic. I, I myself, I alone, is, the, is a sense of the, of, the, uh, 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 of the sentence, have set my throne, my, my king upon the throne. Think of Herod, Herod and Pilate and Caiaphas and all those who thought they'd gotten rid of Jesus and they literally wash their hands clean of the whole thing, they go to bed, celebrate the, the Passover, everything seems great. Saturday comes along, man, we've won. Go to bed Saturday night. And then Sunday morning, something happens. They begin getting weird news from the, the guards who are like, "He, the, the, the body is gone, what's what's happening? They pay them a bunch of hush money. But then all of a sudden, the rumor begins to spread all over Jerusalem from these, these 11 guys who they thought... We're a bunch of nobodies who are saying, Jesus has risen again from the dead. God sets the king on the throne, no matter what the nations do. The fulfillment, of course, of this is in the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. This is brought out very clearly in Acts 2. The same Jesus who you crucified, he's been raised and exalted to the right hand of God, ruling and reigning as the king from heaven. And one day he is going to return to reveal his rule the world over. In other words, God's plan for history doesn't even go over a speed bump when faced by all the rebellion of mankind. Now this is really, really good news. Because what this means is sometimes it can feel like the shadow is, is winning. Man, this world is so evil and dark and you turn on the news and you get really discouraged and and like, you know, you, re- you read about these big studies coming about people dechurching, and 40% of Gen Z identify as nuns now, N-O-N-E-S. And you, you look at all these statistics, you're like, man, it doesn't feel like we're winning. Uh, part of that is we have a really narrow scope of we're just looking at our little tiny corner of the world. And yes, we are one tiny little corner of the world. Christianity is growing in other places. But we're also not taking a wide enough view of history. We're just looking at, well, Gen Z. That's one generation. When the Bible gives us this cosmic picture from Genesis to Revelation of a God who rules and reigns, and you get to the end of the story, and God wins hands down, and there's no sort of footnotes or asterisks to sort of be like, well, it, you know, this things didn't turn out quite the way he wanted. God wins in the end. I, I love the, the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Uh, still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. But then there's a the verse later on, one little word shall fell him. The idea of it, one swing of the axe takes the whole tree down of rebellion against God. God wins in the end, and we are on the right side. So it might look like the shadow is winning right now, but we need to remember the end of the story. The gospel will advance. The gospel will advance. That's why I'm so encouraged to, to support missionaries like the Dan's going to a place like Hungary that is very much a sort of non-religious kind of place, we believe that God has much people in the city. We believe that the gospel still saves, still changes lives, and that God is still in the business of smashing through hard hearts and giving life where there was only death. The gospel will advance. Sinners will be saved. Christ will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, this doesn't mean be passive and be like, great, everything will turn out in the end, so let me just go watch football. What this does is inspires us to say we can we can pour our lives, invest our lives in this because we know in eternity this, this will count. The end of 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the fact, hey, the resurrection is going to come in the end. All the enemies are going to be defeated. It calls us to be therefore steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know your labor is not vain in the Lord. Sometimes it feels like, man, the stuff that I'm doing I'm praying for this neighbor. I'm praying for this family member day after day after day after day for them to come to faith in Jesus, and nothing seems to be happening. I'm trying to lead a Bible study at work or at my apartment complex or whatever the case may be, and it just feels like I'm not seeing anything happen. Your labor is not vain in the Lord. You're teaching your kids day after day after day. Here's the Word of God. Here's here's God's truth. You don't see the growth because it's coming so slowly. I believe with all my heart, when we get to eternity, we'll look back and see all the awesome ways that we did not even see that God used our little finite, puny, imperfect efforts to build the church, to advance the gospel. And it's, all, it's not because our efforts in and of themselves matter. It's because God wins in the end. It's because Jesus rules from the throne of heaven that makes everything we do matter. If we have no guarantee that he wins in the end, man, that's a lot of pressure on you and me. Pressure that we cannot carry. I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Praise God that he wins. We move into this third stanza here, and now we hear the king speak. You could imagine this perhaps in the coronation ceremony, that the psalm is sort of being read, and they're imagining the nations raging, and God saying, no, I'm going to put my king on the throne. And now the king announces his right to rule. What, what right does the son of David have to rule? You know, what gives a king the right to go tell everyone else what to do? Is it just because he's the most powerful, because he took over in a coup, because he won a popularity contest? Here's the basis of the king's rule: I will declare the decree. In other words, God has made a decree. Here it is: The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. The king now speaks and describes thee the status and the standing of the king. Now, what is being said here is pretty much a poetic take on what God said back in 2 Samuel. So let's pop back there for a second. 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Back to the reign of David. David is, in his heart, has said, God, I want to build a house for you. I want to build a temple. God's going to tell him, no, you're not going to do that. Your son will. Rather than you building a house for me, I'm going to build a house for you. And by house, sort of a, a lineage of dynasty. So 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. Now therefore thou shalt say unto my servant David, 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. God's like, I'm the one who appointed you to be the king. You were a shepherd, now you're a king. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and if Cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight. So, you know, Goliath and now Saul and the, the, the nations around him. There's now peace surrounding David. And have made thee a great name, like under the name of the great men that are in the earth. It's part of the promise to Abraham, I'll make your name great. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may dwell in the place of their own and move no more. "'Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. "'And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, "'and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, "'also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee in house.'" So God's now saying, David, I'm going to set up a, a dynasty, a lineage for you. "'And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, "'I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, "'and I will establish his kingdom. "'I'm going to set my king on the throne, son of David.'" He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this is talking initially about Solomon. Okay, Solomon's going to build the temple. He does. Part about his kingdom lasting forever, that didn't happen because Solomon really blew it. But here's the idea of the father's son, and I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before me. Thy throne shall be established forever. So this is this incredible promise God makes to David. Your son's going to rule after you. He's going to build the temple. He's going to, be, he's going to sort of be adopted, as it were, as a son. He's going to have a special close relationship with me as his God, sort of representing me, as it were. I said a minute ago, God's the ultimate king. The Davidic king sort of represents him. And he's going to say this, this kingdom he's going to have is going to last forever. Special status as God's son. That's what's being referred to in Psalm 2. It says, today you're, to, you're my son, today have I begotten thee. This is talking about this special relationship when the, when the king takes the throne, when the crown is placed on his head, he now enters into the special status of representing God. But there's even more to this. Back in Exodus 4, God had said to, to Pharaoh, let Israel go, they may go serve him. But he says, Israel is my son. So he's saying the nation as a whole sort of stands corporately as God's son. But then we get to David, God saying, the king representing the nation takes on that role. And then we get to Jesus, and it narrows even further down to say, not only is Jesus sort of this royal adopted son representing the nation, Jesus is God's son in the eternal sense. Not that God had a kid or sort of took Jesus and adopted him. Rather that Jesus from eternity has this, this, this relationship with the Father, that between the Father and the Son that, that John's gospel will talk about. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So all of that is at play here when we read Psalm 2. You're my Son, today have I begotten thee. For David, take the throne, you enter into the special relationship. For Jesus, in the truest, fullest, most profound sense, being the eternal Son of God. Now here's why Jesus is so important. That promise that I just read to you, man, the line of David lasted for a few hundred years, and it ended in a heap of rubble when Jerusalem was destroyed. There has not been a son of David ruling over Judah since Zedekiah in 586 B.C. That doesn't sound like an eternal kingdom, does it? Rather than being faithful, they were disobedient. David and David's descendants failed miserably to live in obedience to God. And so David's line was cut down like a rotten tree, and it ended like a, a stump. But from that stump, spraying a branch out of the root of Jesse. From David's line came a perfect son. From Israel came the perfect Israelite, the perfect king, the one who would represent God's people perfectly in spite of our disobedience. I'll have you turn over to, to one other place here. In Luke chapter 1, This explicitly gets picked up. This is really important that we see the connection, that we connect the dots here from from David, adopted his son, to Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, no-name place, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. He's a descendant of David. And to the, vir- and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. Like, man, that's an interesting way to greet me. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. And then here we go. We get this direct reference to 2 Samuel 7 and and, and Psalm 2. And he shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest in a way that was never true of David. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. So God actually keeps his promise. He doesn't say, well, oh, well, David blew it. The promise is null and void God says, I'm going to keep my promise, and the way God keeps his promise is through his son, Jesus, taking on and assuming a human nature, being born of the virgin, coming into this world and living a sinless and perfect life that David never lived, that Solomon never lived, none of the other kings ever lived, that Joseph didn't live, that you didn't live, that I don't live. Lives a perfect life, represents us perfectly, goes to the cross, bearing the punishment of our sins, is crucified, three days later, rises again as king. And Now, here's the thing that's pretty sweet. How does God declare him to be king? According to Romans 1, verse 4, he is declared to be God's son by the resurrection. At his baptism, the heavens are open. God says, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. At the Mount of Transfiguration, same thing. This is my beloved son, hear him. And at the resurrection, God shouts, as it were, this one is my son, he is the king who rules and reigns. So when we go back to Psalm 2, Yeah, in some sense, it's about David and his descendants sort of adopted special status, God's son, representing the people. But it is ultimately true and perfectly true of only one person, and that is Jesus. By the way, this verse gets quoted again and again in the New Testament. That David's son would actually be God's son. That the anointed one would really be a single individual who would be perfect. But verses 8 and 9 talk about his authority. So I'm going to give you the the heathen, the nations, you'll rule the uttermost parts of the world for thy possession. No king of Israel ever ruled over the entire planet. Not even close, right? If you look at a map, like the the greatest extent of their kingdom under Solomon, is a tiny little sliver there in the the ancient Near East. How does this happen? The uttermost parts of the earth. Where have we heard that phrase before? You shall be witnesses unto me, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of Israel. The earth. The risen and reigning King Jesus expands his rule over the world as the gospel is preached and as people turn to him in repentance and faith. There's a deliberate connection here. Uttermost parts of the earth, the reign and the rule of Jesus being expanded and declared as the gospel goes out. The king's authority is what stands behind the proclamation of the gospel. But verse 9 Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. In some sense, Jesus is not reigning in this sense, right? In one way, yes, already he's reigning. He sits on the throne of heaven. His authority and rule is proclaimed when we preach the gospel. But in another sense, the nations are still in rebellion against him, right? Um, Our nation is in rebellion against him. The nations of the earth are in rebellion against him. Verse 9, thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. There's coming a time where there will be a decisive moment of judgment where he... Brings in all the fulfillment of all the promises. Verse 9 gets quoted three different times in the book of Revelation to assert the fact that one day King Jesus will come back and smash all rebellion against him. I love Revelation 19, describing the second coming of Jesus. I said this passage is about both the first coming and the second coming. Just hear the word of God here from Revelation 19. And I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness does he judge and make war. His eyes were a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he's a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Okay, that's Jesus. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Quote from Psalm 2. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. One day, King Jesus will come back in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, all of his fearsome power. And he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He'll smash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Think about a clay pot that's brittle. And take a hammer and smash that. That's what's going to happen one day to the rebellion of mankind. He will judge all those who oppose him. There there will be no one who will be able to withstand his rule. The most vaunted nations... Will be little more than brittle pottery before his rule. He will defeat all of his enemies. He will raise the dead. He will fulfill his promises. He will reign on this earth. He will rule over an eternal kingdom that will never, ever end and usher in a new heaven and a new earth. Beloved, one day everything that is broken in this world, all the stuff that we look at and say, that's just not right, everything that's broken will be fixed. Everything evil will be banished. Everything sad, to use Tolkien's phrase, will become untrue. Everything wrong will be righted. And that is what we look for. That is our hope. Our hope, beloved, is not and cannot be the next election, or the election after that, or the one after that. It's not that one day, well, man, this policy will make all these other things right. Our hope is not that we will somehow, by our own power, bring in the kingdom and make this world a utopia. Our hope is the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's where we need to put our hope, because if you put your hope anywhere else... Your hope will be smashed. That's, you even put your hope, like, all my eggs will be in the basket of, a, of my marriage. You're going to run into difficulties in your marriage. I'm going to find all of my meaning and hope in being a parent. Kids are going to grow up and leave home one day. Put your hope in Christ. And those other things, you can enjoy them for what they are. We come into the final stanza of Psalm 2. Here's the application. I like that the psalm brings the application home. Us. Okay, in light of verses 1-9, to 9, of verses 1-9 through 9 are true. Okay, the nations are in rebellion against God, but God's going to win anyway, and it doesn't matter. He's going to override the rebellion and defeat the rebellion. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled, just a little. Lest are all they put their trust in him. Call here is now for us to listen. Here we have the psalm speaking. Here we have the spirit speaking. Harry Ironside had an interesting way of outlining the psalm. He said in verses 1 to 3 that the world speaks. And then we have verses 4 to 6. The father speaks and the son speaks. And then he says here we have the spirit speaking. The Holy Spirit making this appeal to us. To submit ourselves to the king. If Jesus is the king. So what? I think probably most of us here would be like, yeah, it sounds like the right thing I'm supposed to affirm, that Jesus is the king, and I think you've proved it from this, that he's the fulfillment of this stuff to David, and he's going to come back one day. But what does that mean for us right now? So we talked about what it means for him to be king sort of in the context of Herod, what it means for him to be king when he comes back one day. But what does it mean for you and me right now that's very instant? How then should we live? What should our lives look like? Well, if he's king, we've got to listen to him. Verse 10, it is a call to listen. Be wise, be instructed. You can really only be instructed if the earbuds are out, right? And you're paying attention. We can only be instructed if we are we are we are heeding his voice and we're kind of leaning forward, saying, Okay, hey, what, what does he have to say? I want to respect and reverence what his word is, what his command, what his instruction for me is. What is also So instructive here. I think we'd all agree the nations in rebellion against God, verses 1, 2, and 3, deserve God's immediate judgment. Yet God does not unleash his immediate judgment. There's actually this appeal. We have a God who is merciful, who is patient, who is long-suffering. And he's making this appeal to these rebels. Whenever the gospel goes out, God is appealing to those who don't know Christ to say, bow the knee. Before it is too late. There's a reminder here. The king of kings will always win. And he will always rule. Your idea of autonomy is a myth. Sin will always fail in the end. The appeal here is if you you are not a Christian today. If you are not sure that you are right with God. This is God's word to you. Be wise. Be warned. Come to him in faith. You can either heed the tender voice of verse 10. Or be crushed by the iron rod of verse 9. If Jesus is king, and he is king, then we should listen to him. Now, there's so many implications to this. Listening to him is more than just like, I'm going to just have the Bible playing 24-7 in my house, and just always be listening to it. Listening in in a biblical sense is not just sort of an auditory exercise or an intellectual exercise. It's listening for the purpose of obeying. It's taking in God's word and thinking God's word and doing God's word. We should value it. of course we should read it every day. Of course, we should make every effort to hear it whenever it is preached and, and taught. But heeding it in a, in a practical sense of saying, this is going to be the rule of, of my life. This is going to be the standard for how I think. Now, verse 11 adds, if he's king, not only should we heed him, we should worship him. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now, this is this is sort of the language of, of fealty and, and vassalage. You're gonna, he's the king, I'm gonna submit to him, I'm gonna serve him. But do you notice kind of the, the juxtaposition here? Almost sort of like, what's what, serving and fear and, and joy? Like, how do you have fear and joy at the same time? We kind of think of like, if I'm afraid, I'm not happy. If I'm happy, I'm not afraid. But this is saying, no, genuine worship of God is both. It's not just sort of happy, clappy, like, yay, we're, we're, everything's great. Nor is it just quivering in fear and sort of dodging Zeus's lightning bolts. There is a reverence That genuine worship is not just coming to church and like go through the motions. There's a reverence for the holiness and the majesty and the presence of God. But there's also infinite joy that comes when we realize he's my God and he is awesome and he is great and he is good and he is holy. So this, what one person calls serious joy. It's not just the light sort of happy joy of like I watched a comedy sketch and it made me happy. This is joy that's rooted in things that are eternal. And joy that's not just sort of light-hearted levity, but has some weight to it. What's being called for here in verse 11 is, is worship. Rejoice with trembling. The God we worship is an awesome, glorious, majestic God. It's to the king that we we sing in joy. It's from the king that we, we, we listen to his word. Whenever the Bible is read, it's, a, it's a, the king speaking to us. If he's our king... We've got to serve. We've got to obey him. So this is not just some kind of like, "Yep, he's the king. Great. I'm coming to church. But no, practical reality means that in all things, he should have the preeminence in my marriage and and in my my politics and in my entertainment and in my thought life. And in the way that I speak, I'm representing him. Christ as king is not a, a slogan that you throw around on Twitter as a conversation stopper. It is a way of life. It's not a, a bumper sticker, but it is an entire worldview. He's king, verse 12, submit to him. Trust in him. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Now, we often associate kind of kissing with romance. In the ancient world, there's another dimension to this. That the, the kiss of fealty, of swearing allegiance to someone. We even have the idea of, you know, someone kissed the ring. Uh, sort of like they have now sort of entered into uh, some kind of a, allegiance with an individual. To kiss the son is to say, I'm recognizing him as my king and I have sworn my loyalty to him. He says, if you don't, you're going to face his anger and you will perish. In other words, you're either on Jesus' side or you're not. If you're on his side, you're safe, you're protected. If you're not, you will face his judgment. To be neutral is to be opposed. Whoever is not for him is against him. And all those who refuse to bow the knee today in faith will one day bow the knee before him in fear. See, as we come into Advent, it's not enough just to sing joy to the world, let earth receive her king. Each person must say, am I going to receive him as king? Which means so much more than just praying a prayer and inviting Jesus into my heart and then going on with my life. It means he takes up control in the control center, the core of my life. But I love the other side of the coin in verse 12. Because not only, okay, I better better join him because I'll face his anger, but there's another side to this which is so positive and beautiful and, and wonderful. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So it says, okay, kiss the son lest he be angry. Okay, avoid judgment by joining Jesus, but also enjoy blessing by joining Jesus, to take refuge. What beautiful language to be protected by him, to be saved by him, to be secure in him. Again, in the ancient world, those who would enter into these kinds of treaties, these kinds of covenants, yes, you would swear your loyalty to the king, but the king would also swear to protect you from any kind of an attack. When we enter into a relationship with Jesus, yes, we swear our loyalty to him. We, we confess him as Lord. He's our Savior. He's the one that we, that we follow, the, names, the, the one whose name we bear. We call on the name of the Lord, but whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. All those who swear loyalty to him will be protected by him. If you're in Christ, if you're you're saved, if you have turned from your sin to trust in Jesus, you are eternally safe from God's wrath. You'll never face condemnation. You'll never face God's anger. You're forever protected from Satan's attacks. You're forever protected from the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. In other words, nothing is going to happen to you other than what God wills in your life. We don't simply bow the knee to the king to avoid his anger. We join him to enjoy his blessing. And there's no one safer, more blessed, there's no place more glorious than to be in a saving relationship, a right relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what verse 12 is calling us to. So if he's king, beloved, what what does that mean in your life? Now, maybe you are here today as a, as a Christian. You're like, I, I know I'm, I'm saved, I'm right with God. But there's always that battle, that clash of kingdoms going on in our hearts. Areas of our lives that we we sort of try to take back or we we don't want to acknowledge his kingship in. What are those areas in your life? What are those sort of pockets of resistance where God's holy war must continue to be waged? What sin, what, what vice, what areas of selfishness or pride need to be brought under subjection to the one who rules? The coming of Jesus into the world Man, it, those who receive him, it does bring joy to the world. For those who reject him, it doesn't bring joy. Joy to the world can either either have an exclamation point after it or a, or a question mark after it. Doesn't really, really joy to the world? What are you talking about? Christ's presence can bring either great joy to you or great danger to you. So the question is, which is it? Which is?